Hey everybody, welcome to my show, my Rockfin show. We got uh, one of my favorite people on, someone who I love to talk to, so I just figured I should talk to him live in public, uh, Garland Nixon. I was actually just talking to my neighbor uh, down here in, in DC, and she's a big Garland Nixon fan, so he has a lot of a lot of local love. Garland is a host here locally on Pacifica Radio, um, KPF. W KPFK WPFW and now KPFK in Los Angeles. I have a show on there on Mondays. See, I was just in LA, so that's ninety point seven. Here it's eighty nine point three PFW, and then you got what KPFA in the Bay. Are you on there? No, I'm just KPFK and WPFW. Okay, well that's that's pretty big listener base, and you are host with Wilmer Leon of the Critical Hour on Sputnik which is now in the crosshairs and I guess we're going to, we're going to jump off. Uh, we're going to lead with a little discussion of what's happening there. I think everybody who's watching this now is familiar with the fact that RT America was sort of taken down, although it's not exactly the backstory there isn't exactly clear. Um, right. So maybe we can get into that, but let's, let's play this. Um, Let's let's play something from uh, CNN. CNN, you finally got on CNN, Garland, uh, and Wilmer. Will your your co-host? He's a PhD in political science. He's one of the sharpest political minds. I listen to your show all the time. It's one of the best shows, and so it's so great that CNN finally covered you. And let's let's see how CNN did it. Um, this is Alexander Marquard. Actually, uh, my understanding was he started approaching people at Sputnik by email and said, "I just got back from." From Kiev, they all call it Kiev in the mainstream media, as if that's relevant. You know, it's like um, I just went to the bathroom, and you know, I wanted to talk to you about this. But it, he's kind of suggesting, you know, I'm really angry about what's going on. Um, here we go. Driving around downtown Washington, if you tune the radio to 105.5 FM, you land on. Uh oh. Funded by a Russian state media no! Playing in the American capital on public airwaves. Here in DC, you can listen to Sputnik on both FM and AM radio. Their shows are hosted by Americans and they continue to broadcast even when other Russia backed outlets have been taken off of platforms like YouTube and Facebook. And that's why we're doing this because we want them taken off too, because at CNN, we want to get journalists fired because of Russia's war in Ukraine. The host can often be heard parroting Kremlin talking points on Ukraine. I already knew that the Ukrainian Nazis were real. Wait, wait, are we saying they're not real? And I, when Putin started talking about it, I was like, well, it's about time you talk about it. Host Lee Stranahan calls himself pro-Russian. And while the world condemns Russia for the atrocities... The world. Russia, the world. Ukrainians the world, yeah. found and executed... Some Sputnik hosts aren't convinced. You're not part of the world. No, There's obviously. not much dispute about whether these atrocities actually occurred. I think the question is, who's responsible for doing it? They claim to simply be offering a different viewpoint, asking questions, challenging the narrative. 
which often veers into seeing conspiracies, seeding oh, doubt. Powerful people working together. Classic elements of disinformation. The companies that put Sputnik on the air are forced to register as foreign agents with the Justice Department. Sputnik is required to tell listeners who backs them, a media group funded by the Russian government. Oh, there's Sean Blackman's voice. None of the Sputnik hosts we reached out to would speak to us for this story. I wonder why. Scotty Nell Hughes, uh, former CNN contributor. Actually, I offered to. So you offered to. All right. Well, let's, said, you know, we get the point here of yeah. what, you know, he's getting at. But yeah, what, what are your impressions of this? Uh, well, you know, he gets, sent me an email and he says, hey, will you come on? And I said, well, I said, to be honest, I'll do it. But only if it's live. I said, because I've, I have some concern about misleading edits. And he's like, oh, no, no, no. I said, OK, well, thanks anyway. And um, and, you know, it was interesting because it was really a week. You know, I expected if they were going to, like, come after us, that they do better than that. That was like really, really weak. Like, yeah, they're Russian. And the worst thing that he said was yeah. we so wow. doubt you didn't get to that. But he said they yeah. so doubt. I thought that was the interesting thing. And I'm like, well, I've been so in doubt, you know. That's kind of what I've been doing my whole life. When I was a kid, you know, I was like sticking my hand up in the back of the class. Hey, why? You know, but now we live in an environment where it is apparently wrong to sow doubt um, regarding the mainstream narrative. Well, doubt threatens a U.S. elite that has no credibility or has lost credibility. They're and so it's very convenient for them to blame Russia for sowing doubt when where I come from, people doubt the U.S. elite. Like I meet them all across the country and none of them have even most of them haven't even heard of Sputnik. Well, here's the thing. It's part of what we have now in reality um, to use like a, a, a Fox News kind of framing. It's a war on critical thinking. It is, yeah. we're going to give you a very superficial talking point that barely, it just doesn't, gives you a little something to work with and there's no depth to it. So if someone comes along with some depth and says, but why, you know, we should do this, but why, or something like that, that's a problem for them because that involves, you start bringing into, in other streams of data, such as history and, uh, you know, um, strategic empathy and things of that nature, which really destroys these very simplistic and superficial propaganda narratives that they put forward. Yeah. And I think the, the other aspect of this report and what we hear constantly about Russian propaganda in the United States from corporate media is this fear of the American public. First, this fear that the American public is becoming too populist. And so, you know, you had the, the, the Facebook ads, what there were like $130,000 worth of ads, most of them non-political or unrelated to the election in 2016, but some of them targeted black Americans, which is a group that the US elite is traditionally afraid of, doesn't want them to be restive, doesn't want them to get too loud. And so it taps into the fear that all of a sudden ads, foreign ads are targeting a certain constituency that has traditionally been betrayed by this country. And then there's the fear, there's the contempt for the American public, that they don't believe the American public is smart enough to be discerning and to tell what's false from true. Uh, and they, I guess, hope that they're not because obviously no one would buy into CNN then. You know, I actually look at it a little bit differently. I look at it kind of the opposite way. 
that they're afraid that the American people really are smart enough to figure things out. You know, that it's not that they're afraid, oh my gosh, people will be confused if they hear alternative perspectives, that they really believe if people um, hear alternative perspectives, they won't be confused. They will actually start to question um, our narratives. They will actually see through the simplistic narratives that we put together. So I think it, um, what they're doing kind of, um, it comes across as an elitism that says, I'm smarter than the average person, therefore I must curate the information that they're getting. But I think what it really is um, in, in, in reality is I have to stop people. I have to um, curate the information and make sure they only hear from one, one side because they really are smart enough if they hear both sides to figure out that my side is weak. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we have uh, T. Adams in the comments calling it an excess of democracy. Uh, reminds me of a uh, Samuel Huntington track that was published uh, in the early 70s. Huntington wrote a book called The Crisis of Democracy with a co-author and warned that the 60s had brought out, yeah, an excess of democracy in the United States and called for specific mechanisms to be put into place to get the democratic monster back in the box. In other words, to have a more managed democracy, control over the media was obviously one of one of his recommendations and also a less stimulating, more rigid workplace. Uh, the, and, I, and, and so I think when you, when you look at our elite now, mm-hmm. they're still sharing these same concerns and we're far less democratic I think there's far of a less democratic culture in the American populace than there was in the late 60s and the early 70s uh, because of all them doing the work. Uh, but now you have this obsession with disinformation among the U.S. elite. What, what do you what do you make of this kind of paranoid obsession? Well, I think and, and you know, I'm, I'm familiar with the um, with the uh, with the work you were talking about. And here's the way I always looked at it. When you say a managed democracy, here's what you're the elite ruling class is really talking about this. How do I create the illusion of democracy without real democracy? Right. So I manage the information enough that people think they know what they're voting for. They think they know what they're asking for. They think they know what they should get, but they don't because I'm not giving them enough enough information. Um, They're not giving me informed consent. consent. I don't have an informed voter. And without an informed voters, you don't really have democracy. So right. I think that's where we are now, but I think that's running out. I think it started really going downhill in 2016 with the Bernie Sanders, you know, when they kind of robbed Bernie, I think that woke a lot of people up. I think the system felt threatened, even though, you know, if we could talk about Bernie, there's a lot of like of, about him, there's a lot of don't. But I think that the system, they, they didn't just see Bernie, you know, he'd had 6% or something in the, in the past. Once Bernie really started catching fire and they realized, my God, look at these crowds this guy's getting. People really want the things that he's asking for. They they were kind of smoked out. It kind of made them come out and say, well, you know what? We pretended on CNN and MSNBC and all of that, that this is a, a Democratic Party and that we're going to give all candidates equal access. But there is a threat to the ruling elite, the elite ruling class now, and we're going to do everything necessary, no matter how overt, to stop this threat. They knew Bernie was on a track to win and that he would beat the crap out of Hillary if they were honest. 
However, to a lot of Americans, they woke up to that and said, wait a minute, I, I was one of them. I was like, I at least thought there was some semblance of democracy in the Democratic Party, but now I see what it really is. And that was the beginning of the, that started the crisis of legitimacy for the ruling class because, well, yeah, yeah, go ahead. And WikiLeaks exposing it. Yes. Yes. Oh, that was a big one. Well, and here's the funny thing too about WikiLeaks. And that is people intuitively know they're being had. What Wiki, and but then we're told we're gaslighted. We're like, hey, I think we're being had. And they say, oh, that's silly tinfoil hat craziness. And we don't have anything concrete to put forward to prove what we already intuitively know. WikiLeaks gave us that. WikiLeaks finally said, yeah, they are robbing you. And here's the information. Here's the data that you need to prove it. And once we had the data, then they had to start really dancing like, oh, OK, that's Russian disinformation. Uh, perhaps they were changed. I mean, they just tried everything at that point. And right. then Trump came along. He created desperation. They really felt threatened and they really came out of their um, came you know, out from under their rocks to do all of the dirtiest things they could do overtly um, to stop what they saw as the threats of Bernie and Trump in different ways. Right. I mean, I I said that if Bernie had somehow come out of the 2020 primary over and somehow overcome all the hurdles and been the primary nominee, the Democrats and the Democratic establishment would have destroyed him and preferred Trump to win because they wouldn't want the reckoning of him in control of the party apparatus and the levers of power. And Trump allowed them to embrace their most authoritarian instincts and use the, you know, the unelected areas of the corporate state that they controlled to suppress and censor and run investigations and wiretap the president. So it would have actually been more convenient in a way for them to have had Trump. Now they're stuck with a sort of demented president who is less popular among U.S. liberals than Vladimir Zelensky. <laughs> yeah. And it seems to be throwing them into crisis. Yeah. Well, the thing I've, I've come to realize in recent years, when you look at the Hunter Biden stuff, when you look at the kind of things that was going on with, bio, whether it's bio-research labs all over the place, yeah. and when you look at the level of corruption, you realize we're now in an empire that can't have an honest leader. They can't possibly afford to have an honest leader because they the corruption is at a level that they can't take a chance that an honest leader would come up and say, holy, mo am I seeing what I think I'm seeing? That an honest person may just say, well, you know, I think we have to um, we have to address some of this corruption and they can't have that because the, it's endemic to the system. So now um, they can't have whatever they have to do. They've got to keep one of their people in power. So there is no semblance of democracy left in, in the uniparty. Well, who's, I mean, who's really in charge? I mean, <clears throat> there's no real person in charge of the uniparty. But I would say if there's any person who's presiding over this program and over the Biden administration, certainly who's responsible, most responsible for Biden, I mean, you can probably guess that person. Uh, maybe Obama. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so here we have Obama. Let me play. Um, well, I'll preface the video and I'm going to be talking more about this in detail on Monday. We're going to do a gray zone live stream on Monday and I'm going to, we're going to play a large segment of Obama's speech at the Stanford center on cyber policy 
whatever it's called. Obama gave one of delivered one of the most insidious speeches I've seen in recent years, and it highlights what Obama's agenda going forward is. But you know he does so in double speak, in very slick double speak. Uh, is vintage Obama. Uh, Obama at his worst and best. And it's a speech about disinformation on how to handle it. You have to sit through a lot to get to the dramatic conclusion of what should be done. And then you have to interpret Obama's double speak to understand where the system is moving and what the agenda is. The agenda is to put the people in the room who Obama is speaking to, who are the future leaders of the cybersecurity state being cultivated at Spook Central in Stanford with Michael McFall sitting in the front row in charge of the internet, of the whole internet, but especially social media in order to shape reality according to Obama's worldview, which actually puts Obama in control of something much more powerful than the presidency. He will be in control of reality itself. That's how I see the agenda. I'll just play a little clip. I mean, there's there's a lot to to see here, but I'm just going to play a clip. This is something that kind of like got right wingers um, kind of exercise, but it, it kind of shows you where Obama's going with all this. And we can, I don't know, we'll, we'll just see what you think, Garland. Okay. People like Putin and Steve Bannon, for that matter. Understand, it's not necessary for people to believe this information in order to weaken democratic institutions. You just have to flood a country's public square with enough raw sewage. You just have to raise enough questions, spread enough dirt. People like Putin and Steve Bannon, for that matter. Understand, it's not necessary for people to believe this information in order to weaken democratic institutions. You just have to flood a country's public square with enough raw sewage. You just have to raise enough questions, spread enough dirt. People like Putin. Sorry, I think I played that like three times, but it was worth. I don't think he meant to say spread enough dirt. I think he meant to say spread enough doubt, which is what you yeah. were talking about at the beginning, Garland. Um, so any any thoughts on that clip? Yeah, a couple of things. And that is in there, you know, what I think is interesting how now that everything is, you know, from for the last, you know, 20 years, it was all about terrorism. We had to stop terrorism. The grift was terrorism, right? That was what we right, were doing everything right. to stop. The instant we, the, the second we left Afghanistan, it's now about democracy and democratic institutions. And before it was about terrorism or bin Laden or ISIS or whoever. Now it's Putin and it's democracy and democratic institutions. And what's, you know, really, I guess, of consequence there is that you're looking at the United States empire, a country that routinely um, overthrows other governments. You're looking at Barack Obama, a guy who prior to the 2020 election was quoted as having said that if he saw um, 
the circumstances changed where Bernie Sanders looked like he was going to win it big, that he'd have to step in. So you're looking at a party that doesn't believe in democracy within their own party. So the whole thing is a fraud to mislead the American people so that they can do whatever they want. They can maintain control. But and that's the, the liberal interventionist way of doing things. Instead of right. just saying, like Trump, hey, we want the oil, you say, we're bringing you democracy, we're looking out for whatever goodness and wonderful. It's just right. a, it's a different way of justifying the use of raw power. Right, right. Well, Obama says in this speech, I am a free speech absolutist. So what he means is that we are not actually going to outright arrest and censor people unless they're Julian Assange, but let's just forget about right. that. But he then says there are people who cannot be removed from social media because they technically follow the rules on YouTube or elsewhere, and they're very popular. So YouTube has an incentive to keep them on there, but they are spreading what Obama calls disinformation, which as you and I know is anything that interferes with the objectives of the establishment he represents. And so things need to be done with them through what he calls reform more government intervention. So you're right. It's very interventionist and the intervening will be done by the nerds in the room, the, 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 the hyper obedient nerds who are in that room, who are like learning from Michael McFall and they represent the security state and he calls for a reform, but not breaking up big tech or nationalizing it. Cause that would be too socialist. So and, yeah. Oh, go ahead, and, you know, I like those kind of caveats. They're not technically breaking the rules. Right. Well, it sounds like he's actually just saying they're not breaking the rules. If they're not technically breaking the rules, they're not breaking the rules at all. But the inference is clear. How do we deal with people who aren't breaking the rules, but the formal rules, but they are, break they are breaking our informal unwritten rules the, the you know what that's the equivalent of what tony blinken always says rubio our rules based order if you say to him where can i go to read it is it on the line where can i get a copy of rules rules based order you can't that's the idea we are in power and we can project our power um in a in an arbitrary and capricious manner that's the key to rules based order and when he says how do we deal with people that don't technically break the rules he's saying the same thing it's they won't come out like a trump and say we just use raw power we don't care yeah. what you think we're bigger and stronger than you are and we can do it but they've got a nice way of saying the same thing accomplishing the same thing and giving us some you know a bull crap uh you know, fluffy way of saying they're doing it in in a in a um, in a way that appears to be fair, which makes them more dangerous. I mean, Trump comes out and says, "We're just going to crush you because we're stronger than you." Blinken says, "The rules based order means that you're a bad actor, and we're the nice guys, uh, and we're actually going to save your people from you." By doing the same exact thing, Trump would have done with a different, more plausible justification. The Democrats. We have a question for you, uh, Garland, from Sarah, uh, from anti-Trump hysteria to non-vaxxed hysteria to anti-Russia hysteria, and in a few months, anti-China hysteria as neocons move on to Taiwan. Do you see this cycle of hate burning itself out eventually, or is there a way to counter any of it? I see. Uh, yeah, well, here's what I think is going to happen. Um, I think it's going to be interrupted by uh, the economic problems. 
You know, it, 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 if the economy were fine and things were going smooth, I think people would just drift from, you know, from Saddam to Al Qaeda to ISIS, bin Laden and on, you know, a nice flow to the next boogeyman of the day. But I think that what's going to happen, we're going with this inflation, um, gas prices are going to continue to rise and people are going to start feeling pain. And they're going to look at the government and say, we want you to mitigate our economic pain. Well, the neocons are in charge right now and they are totally unconcerned with domestic policy other than how they can manipulate domestic policy to achieve their hegemonic goals. So I think the problem they're going to have is the same problem they're having in, in France right now that's going to get much worse in Europe. You know, and uh, the, the, there's a history in Europe that says when people run out of bread, it's off with the leader's head. And I think that's kind of um, what that's what I think will is, is the only thing that can and will interrupt the cycle of um, delusion, uh, boogeyman related delusion that we're currently in. Well, we have uh, actually a really great headline from the BBC uh, that illustrates a lot of what you're saying. Work from home to beat Putin, says EU. Um, so basically, th th this is a rich man's war that Ursula von der Leyen needs to win. Her, she, by the way, married into the family that owned the silk factory that saw Germany's first worker revolt in, I believe, the 1820s that helped inspire Karl Marx uh, to write his manifesto. So she comes from a long line of aristocrats, and she was in 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 Kiev with her little fake bulletproof vest on with Zelensky, you know, showing resolve against Putin. But the plebeians of Europe are being instructed by Brussels to follow a nine point plan, according to the BBC. Um, drive less, turn down air conditioning and work from home three days a week to reduce reliance on Russian energy. So they're going to make you poor, make your life worse in order to confront Russia. And then, um, Drive more slowly on highways with the car air conditioning turned down, which uses less fuel, use the train instead of flying, travel by public transport, walk or cycle. I mean, you know, that's all good. I like to do that. Um, a lot of working class people around D.C. here, though, they need their cars. To My, my neighbor, she uh, is uh, uh, like an usher at the Nationals baseball stadium and she gets a ride there. She really doesn't have any way to cycle there. Um, that's how working people live in a lot of places around the world. They're just being told, uh, you know, just walk. So, uh, this is all to confront Putin apparently, but it sounds a lot like what, what was, what people were being told to do to confront COVID, uh, while Obama hosted all of his, um, buddies and Martha's Vineyard maskless and, uh, you know, had a super spreader event and no one cared. So this is, I mean, this, I mean, how is the public going to react to this? Oh, I think um, I really believe there is an ill will coming. I mean, an ill wind coming in um, in Europe. I think that you know these uh, elite, the elite ruling class in Europe is pushing for regime change, and they're going to get it. But it ain't going to be in Russia. I think that um, I don't know that um, Macron loses to Le Pen Sunday. You know, it could be close, but it's possible that she that 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 Le Pen wins. But I don't see any of these um, governments lasting for long. Um, you know, Schultz, Olaf Schultz, Schultz etc. Yeah. They're 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 toast. I think um, we're going to see 
Europe moved to a right, moved to kind of the popular, a lot of populist rights. And there now there are people saying, oh, that's scary because of those people are fascists. And here's what I have to say. These ultra liberals are fascists. So there's fascism in, in Brussels right now. So you may look at a different version of the fascist, you know, you, you, you got vanilla or strawberry fascist ice cream, but the fascism isn't going to change a different brand. But what I think you're going to be looking at is a populist right that's less interventionalist, most likely, and that's a little bit more, uh, they're going to be less, um, you know, um, as far as personal and individual freedoms, they're going to be more for that. Now, when it comes to minority groups and things of that nature, I don't, that may not be so great. But let me tell you one thing, too, that's not being talked about. The Ukrainian refugees, man, they're everywhere. Yeah. And, you know, I think there's going to be significant issues because and that's going to be the big issue eventually. Right now it's being ignored, but you're bringing in people, some of them who have a little bit of a Sig Heiling, goose stepping kind of cultures, kind of going to sneak in there with them and um, from the poorest country in Europe. And times are going to be hard. Food and shelter is going to be more scarce than it is now. And you're going to have millions of people. And let's face it, they're not going to want to go back to Ukraine. It was the poorest country in in um, in Europe when they left. And the right wingers are saying, or, or you know, the 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 Azov um, types are going to say, well, the Russians are in control now and we don't want to go back. We'll just stay here and we'll try to cultivate our ideology right in your very own country. And I just think that whole Ukrainian shift into the rest of Western Europe in the long run is not going to work out well. Yeah. I mean, we saw, I actually can't find it right now. I was looking for it while you were speaking a video of a group of Ukrainian refugees or migrants in Europe attacking um, people, uh, I, I guess, migrants from either South Asia or the Middle East, uh, basically attacking Muslims on the subway. It might have been in Paris. Yes, I sure saw that video. Yeah, it's ugly video. I mean, it's the kind of stuff we're used to seeing on the streets of Kiev, where Roma people are being tied to poles right now and tortured and having their faces painted green. Um, you know, they fled into the cities to escape fighting and they're just being tormented by the so-called territorial defenders who are attached to Azov's national core. Um, so I, it, it, it does remain to be seen. We have a question from T Adams. Uh, do you think Kamala could effectively replace corn pop as the DNC's presidential puppet for the rest of Obama's third term? <laughs> well, that term effectively, well worded. effectively, yeah. effective third. Term. Yeah. Well, I mean, you got Biden shaking hands with the ghost of corn pop the other day in uh, New York <laughs> and wandering aimlessly around the stage for no apparent reason. Kamala can do that. I think the I, I will say that the things that Biden is doing right now, Kamala is um, basically she can do that. She can screw up as bad as him, because in my opinion and in, in the opinion of many people, Biden doesn't have a lot of authority. Not sure how much he knows is going on. So um, I think what's going on, to be quite frank, is that they're more rather than Biden being in charge or an individual being in charge, that there is a background fight. Of, there's a warring faction. There are warring factions in the administration and really in the ruling elite class today fighting for supremacy. And we see a herky jerky foreign policy and no domestic policy, but a herky-jerky policy. And that's just a matter of the various factions fighting. Yeah. 
Yeah. Now, do you think Kamala represents the faction that's distinct from Obama's faction? No, I think that um, she's very dangerous in that she wouldn't be able to discern which faction was the most dangerous. I do think the way I saw her wandering right. around behind, right. you know, chasing Obama around, that she would um, probably get some direction from him. Whether that's the most dangerous faction or not, I don't know. They're all dangerous. You know, would, would you rather be bitten by a cobra or a black mamba? I don't know. But, you know, that's kind of what we're looking at. Yeah, well, actually, I'm trying to bring up a video of that. Um, here, let's watch. This video really deserves to be watched uh, just to illustrate your point, because it really does show who's in charge and who wants to be in charge and who's <laughs> not in charge. Um, it, it was my my impression, too, was that uh, Kamala was really jockeying for position here. Just that watch Kamala. Guy, huh? What's that guy? I remember him. And <laughs> someone's narrating right now. Obama's com complete ham. He's just hamming everyone it up with everyone. But Kamala, is, she's boxing Biden out. She's like me. Barkley on the I'm old 76ers boxing out a, a larger and older That's power bizarre. forward. That is okay. very old. Some, you know, British pundits here. So, yeah, that was really interesting to see. She's just like using her body to yeah. eliminate Biden. Yeah. You know, what's interesting about that and what Obama, they are, have gotten to a point where they've got, they have two people in office that are so glaringly incompetent um, that just to bring Bo Obama into somebody who has the appearance that he knows what day of the week it is, is like an achievement. They're like, Oh my gosh, we got someone in here that's not going to just completely embarrass us. It's not a gaffe machine. It's not going to, you know, do a, a Sarah Palin word salad just for a few minutes. There was like a the the liberal class was like, this feels good, man. This guy yeah. can, I mean, he can put a sentence together. Okay, but unfortunately, we got to go back to these two clowns. Well, and you got Ron DeSantis in the GOP who can string sentences together. I think he went to Harvard Law. He's in his early 40s. He's kind of a devious figure. He's very clever. I loved how he held that press conference in Brandon, Florida during the let's go Brandon craze. What do you make of the conflict? If there is one between him and Trump uh, and, you know, project that going forward into 2024. Going into 2024, if Trump is healthy and he's still, you know, fairly youthful, I think Trump is represents something to the MAGA people. He represents something to the people there symbolically. So I think if Trump is healthy, if he's still fairly youthful and can project a, a strong and youthful presence, he wins it. He wins it because, it, you know, he symbolizes the anti-politician and that's really what they want. He's what they want in, he symbolizes what the 2016 youth vote wanted in Bernie Sanders, the kind right. of outsider anti-politician. Um, the Democrats, I, let me say this something. I don't know if, and, I, and I'm going to make, make, put this, bring this together. You know, CNN had this CNN plus that lasted 21 days, spent $300 million and it was a joke and it just disappeared. They had like 10,000, right, right. they, they had about the, the same number of, um, viewers on a given day that Jimmy Dore will have on one show on YouTube. Right. And I looked uh, you know, I thought about this. 
these pe- these are the people that put this together and they were like shocked. I, I read it, they were shocked that it didn't work. And I thought, these are the people sitting around saying, in 2024, should we go with Amy Klobuchar or Claire McCaskill or Pete Buttigieg? I mean, they're, that's the kind of, that, so these are people that are so <laughs> out of touch with like working class America that yeah. they have no clue. They look at what they want and they're like, that, that'll that work. So I think the Democratic Party is so frighteningly, horrifyingly out of touch with the working class. They're in a bubble that um, cannot be penetrated by reality. Whereas yeah. I don't think the Republican Party there is in the same kind of bubble in that they can, they, they even though it's only on cultural issues, and there's really still, when it comes to the elite ruling class, just puppets, at least on cultural issues, they still have a connection to their constituency. And the Democrats have no, no, there's nowhere where they have any connection to their, they're trying to turn their base into um, clones of their cultural beliefs rather than connect with the cultural beliefs of their citizens. Right. And they have a broad coalition. So there's various cultural beliefs that they'd have to connect with. Right. As is Silicon Valley and Madison Ave, the ad industry. Um, they're they're trying to actually impose or impress upon the public an ideology rather than simply market products to them that they want. Yeah. And that really reflects the delusional nature of the laptop class, especially after COVID. Um, let me actually play a clip from Tucker Carlson last night mocking the demise of CNN Plus that I think, well, first of all, illustrates or highlights why Tucker's popular, um, but also just it just contains some really good material of Brian Stelter that says a lot about why CNN, but also so many of these other um, mainstream platforms that trend liberal are failing. Um, let's and, and and of course, you know, the right is, is 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 pumping this out on their social media channels. So here's some interesting financial news. The stock price at Netflix, which is completely changing entertainment, is down dramatically. 40% just this week. Why? Well, Elon Musk put it this way: quote, the woke mind virus is making Netflix unwatchable. So at CNN, where there is a shortage of self-awareness, supply chain is <laughs> The House unit took the opportunity to squeak, to gloat. Just, just uh, in case you missed that, he called Brian Stelter the House eunuch. <laughs> I mean, he said that. About the fall of Netflix. Watch this. Netflix getting awful reviews for its poor Q1 earnings report. The stock tanking right now. What it means for your sharing of passwords and much more. Netflix, more like Netflix. That's pretty bad. I think what happened for Netflix for a while, they were high on their own supply. They believed they were the future of everything. Everything was going to be streaming all the time. And maybe that's not quite true. (laughs) They were high on their own supply. They convinced them of something that was implausible. They told themselves lies. Yeah. Well, it turns out that CNN's own streaming service called CNN Plus is now shutting down. Fox Business' Charlie Gasparino predicted this would happen weeks ago. In response to that, the spokesman over at CNN, Mac Dornick, wrote back and scolded him, quote, for the record, we are very happy with the launch of CNN Plus and embracing for a long run of success. Where the viewers didn't agree, even though CNN Plus went on to air several bombshell exclusive interviews, including one with Tony Fauci, where he said he's for mask mandates. 
And he, well, look at that picture just real quick. <laughs> that is such, such a perfect angle. Weirdly, nobody watched. So, here so yeah, uh, CNN Plus tanked. Uh, Netflix is tanking. Netflix had, I think Susan Rice was on the board before she was in the Biden administration. Obamas were given $100 million by Netflix to develop. I don't know what they developed. I think it was just a way of thanking them for what they did for the establishment. And then CNN invested $300 million into CNN Plus, which contained such incredible content as Jake Tapper's book club. And they were planning to invest $1 billion in the next four years. And the thing tanked, as you said, in one month. Well, do, what, do, do you sense a, a trend here, Garland? Well, here's the thing. Nobody was watching regular CNN for free. Right. Their numbers are tanking. Once Trump was gone, it was they had Trump and then their numbers started to, you know, their numbers tanked. COVID, they they were COVID all the time. That kind of kept their numbers up a little bit. You know, the fear mongering worked for a while there. And now they don't have anything. And they are the spokesperson for Biden, whose numbers are like 33 percent. 24% amongst Latinos, 21% amongst young people. And they have hitched their um, success to the Democratic Party that is, you know, absolute garbage now that's, un, you know, uh, 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 CNN is a perfect reflection of the Democratic Party and it's unwatchable. You cringe in horror. So, uh, you know, the the if it, it, it's another example of where if you are an upper class person, a wealthy person, if you're a college professor and you're in with the woke crowd, you're going to love CNN. And they all put things together and they all sit in a room and they watch it and they're like, man, that's great. This is awesome. We love it. But they have no connection, just like the Democratic Party. They have no connection to people outside of their economic and social and cultural circles. They have no clue how to... Um, market to them. They have nothing but contempt for people outside. I mean, you know, they hate your guts if, you, if you're not down with whatever it is they want. So they don't have an ability now to uh, push the mainstream PR narrative to anyone. And I don't see that changing because of their piousness. You know what I mean? Their self-righteousness will not allow them to make adjustments. It's, you know, when uh, the perfect thing is when Obama says, messaging. He's been talking about like, we got to figure a way to message or the Democratic Party or the Republican Party for that matter. But they'll say, we have to explain people to our, explain our successes to people. Instead of saying, people should be telling, I always say this, Michael Jordan never had to tell anybody that he was a great basketball player. Everybody could see it and they would point it out and tell it to them. If you have successes, you should, people should be running up to you and say, man, this is great, Joe Biden. We love what you're doing. But instead, that piousness, that self-righteousness says, we know we're right. What's wrong with you, viewer? How, how dare you not watch us? Well, that ain't going to work in the long run. And uh, they're starting to learn the hard way. Oh, I'm not hearing you right now. Yeah, I had myself on mute. Okay. Uh, yeah, I agree. And there was one point that um, you just reminded me of in Obama's disinformation speech at Stanford where he mentioned a poll uh, that really highlighted what CNN's value is. And although it is a corporate network that gets enormous amounts of funding from advertisers, despite the fact that no one watches it unless they're either like 
a boomer who just puts it on in the background because they're used to putting on the news when they cook. Star stream. Are, oh, okay. Are you, You're back you on. You were going yeah, I lost you for a second. Um, sorry, everybody. And I will get, I'm going to, I'm working on getting dedicated bandwidth down here, but right now where it's a amateur hour. Um, but this poll comes along that Obama mentions, I'll, 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 I'll just put it up on screen or at least here's an MSNBC write up and they're, they're, they're chirping about this poll. They're really excited about it. Fox news viewers can change their attitudes with exposure to CNN. So a new study by political scientists, David Brookman of Stanford University, of course, and Joshua Kala of Yale University, shows that Fox viewers who are paid to watch CNN for about seven hours a week for a month and then surveyed about their political attitudes showed that they're five percentage points more likely to believe that people suffer from long COVID and six points more likely to believe that foreign countries did a better job of the U.S., than the US of controlling the virus. In other words, they're more supportive of lockdowns. They're more supportive of voting by mail. And they, you know, and on and on, um, 13 points less likely to agree that if Biden were elected, we'll see many more police get shot by Black Lives Matter activists. So basically CNN is the liberal wing of the US elites corrective to Fox and it it, it 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 this poll is designed to kind of illustrate its value and what that wing of which is I think the dominant wing of the US elite aims to do with people who are part of the political right or who watch Tucker Carlson, which is to deprogram them, uh, to de-radicalize them the same way that uh, Muslims were subjected to de-radicalization programs in the UK. What, what do you think, Garland? Yeah, and I think the key, you know, polls always kill me, you know. It's like, it, yes, uh, we found that if we either um, kidnap people's family and threaten to murder them or pay them <laughs> great sums of money, that, then they'll watch CNN, but pretty much no other way. And if we do that and we can cajole, coerce, or, you know, entice them otherwise to watch CNN, well, they, their attitudes will change about certain things. Well, I would think of this. The only way you're going to get them to watch CNN is if you pay them. And then you're going to have, you know, if, you, if you're paying me to watch CNN, there's going to be a lot of negotiating up before I, you know, watch one minute of CNN. It's going to really have to be worth my while. So yeah. in reality, um, they paid somebody a lot of money to do a poll and somebody created an environment in which they could have a poll, get the outcome that they wanted in the poll. And, you know, I'd be willing to say that if you really searched into the data, you know how um, these groups are now. If you really looked into the data in the poll, that it was probably reinterpreted. They ask them the questions just right before and just right afterwards. But the fact that you say, if I paid you to watch something, it could it would change your mind. It tells you right out off the bat, you got a problem. Right. They're incentivized. But also, these are people who probably need the money desperately. Therefore, they don't have a lot of time to do what you and I do, which is to critically digest the news and search for alternative sources and to balance one source off another. Therefore, they make up probably one of the most suggestible 
uh, sector sectors of the news consumption audience. Uh, they're the most suggestible, some of the most suggestible consumers. So all this poll shows is that propaganda works on a propagandized group, but from a different political angle. Yeah, it sounds like this. We found that people who make up their minds based on the most superficial data will change their minds if they get um, alternative superficial data. But right. what it does is it avoids critical thinking. Bring some people in there because it noticed Fox News viewers. OK, bring some people in there that watch several different that watch, that read RT, Deutsche Welle, Global Times, uh, Al Jazeera, on and on and on, the Tanzania Times, all of that stuff. Bring somebody that read like you and I who read all those kinds of things. And then subject, first of all, when, as soon as we look, we're going to be laughing the whole time we're watching CNN. So we're not going to be able to get anything of it. Right. Right. And and, and my, my other point is just that CNN and MSNBC don't actually, and, and, and Netflix for that matter, they have an ideology behind it. It is an ideology that aims to preserve capitalism more in the long term. The same, and it's a similar ideology that's being used assiduously in, infiltrated into the military, causing a lot of right-wingers and traditional types to be, to get really angry, uh, which, you know, is focused more on uh, all, shifting the military into kind of counterinsurgency intelligence. And it's crudely referred to as the woke ideology. I think the woke ideology, and I have really no better term for it, is a recipe for preserving capitalism. It fractures people into identities and sub-identities, which provides uh, marketing target groups for Madison Avenue that didn't exist before uh, among people who actually believe that they have an identity they didn't have before that can be marketed to. And if I was, I mean, just watching the NBA playoffs, it feels very different watching the commercials. I mean, first of all, I don't go into watching a playoff game preparing to be so alienated. Uh, I'm just thinking I'm going to watch some NBA action, but I wind up getting bombarded with commercials and it's such an overtly woke aesthetic that I can't imagine who they're marketing to because Aside from the miracle grow ads of like for like dads who have lawns, I just don't know who 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 that other stuff appeals to. It really makes me think that I'm watching a political propaganda that has capitalism's long-term concerns at heart. Does does what I'm saying make sense at all? Absolutely. Because one of the things I think we're looking at here is it, it, you're right. It is propaganda because it's pushing something. It's to me, it's pushing an, a different interpretation of ideology. You know, traditionally, the left and right came from, I'm sure, you know, the French parliament. If you sat on the right side of the French parliament, you were you supported the monarch, you supported the noble, nobility, the class, the noble class and the status quo. If you s literally sat on the left side, you were more likely to support change, revolutionary change and, you know, the working class, the poor, the commoners, etc. So now what they're saying is this. You, we want you to identify left or right, but not based on that kind of ology, uh, ideology where a left person on the left says, I support the working class. We want to, you to say you're on the left based on cultural issues such as um, gender identity. That way I can Garland Nixon or to, uh, some guy that works at the loading dock can say I'm um, ideologically aligned with Bill Gates. 
or, or Elon Musk. Why? Well, we both believe in LGBT, uh, gender identity, whatever the case may be, the types of things that they set up that they want you to use as identification of left or right. And now, because you identify with this, you know, ultra rich capitalist class, you think you're on their team and you don't realize that this person who is a Trump voter or a DeSantis voter or whatever has the same economic needs as you. So it's a good divide. It's a it's it's a way of dividing and redefining ideology. Yeah, absolutely. It, it It's very alienating to a lot of people who share a common class interest that is at odds with those of the elite and infuriating and pushes them actually into the hands of the right wing of the Republican party. I think it's, it's a key reason why you see, and this was part of Trump's strategy, I think a brilliant strategy, why you see Trump winning much higher levels. And, and when I say much higher, I mean relatively higher levels of black and brown voters, black and Latino voters than, for example, Mitt Romney or John McCain did. Um, just the, the sense of alienation that comes from the democratic corporate ideology that's being pushed through Silicon Valley and through mainstream culture, as well as Trump actually cultivating subcultures like MMA. And yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, you know, and, and it's uh, it's fair to re recognize things, for instance, in the black community, and, and I'm sure you know this, there are a lot of people, like my father was a longshoreman, he wore a hat, hard hat. My mother had a school bus company, right? She got up early and went out in the cold and started buses and did all school bus stuff, right? They were, you know, hardworking people that went out in all the temperatures and did, you know, kind of the American thing about working, right? But they also went to church and they were very, you know, they were conservative um, to some extent when it came to, you know, they were socially conservative. And you have to recognize that within the black and Latino community, there's still a social conservatism there. And I think one of the reasons that Trump got more um, uh, black and Latino votes than traditionally was because the woke people kind of um, creep out the social conservatism that still, um, it may be as a result of religion or whatever the case may be, but it's there and you have to accept and understand that it's there. And if you just ignore it and step all over it, you're going to pay a price. And when I look at the numbers now, the price is going to get higher and higher for the Democratic Party because they've gone, gone all in on wokeness. But again, when we talk about it, they're running out of options. They don't have another, they don't have a way to connect with working class people, with minority populations. So they've got to try to drag the minority populations into their ideology and force them or at least convince them that wokeness is the cultural connection rather than economic class, which would traditionally was what was the connection. Great point. And it actually goes back to another section in Obama's speech where he's introduced by an Obama fellow who is a a younger black American woman who has her own foundation, which is backed by the corporate donors to the Obama foundation. And Obama essentially calls for these sorts of NGOs, corporate and billionaire backed NGOs run by people of color to be stakeholders controlling and being involved in what is shown and 
presented to the public and what is not presented to the public by social media companies alongside the government. And by the government, he doesn't mean people we elect. He means people in the cybersecurity services, um, intelligence spooks, and so on. So, And then he also mentioned a program uh, to teach media literacy, which is code for su um, support for mainstream media and established news sources in public schools in inner cities. So it's clear what's going on there. Uh, a, 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 a program to indoctrinate um, a part of the population that has been betrayed to maintain their support for the Democratic Party and the establishment. Yeah, and it's basically, you know, it gets back to the same thing I was saying before. They want to create a left in America, and we see it now, a left that is funded, organized, a an ostensible left, a, a, a something that they can call the left, but it's funded and it's organized and fully um, supported by the elite ruling class so that they have the illusion of the left. And we see that in the Democratic Party right now, that there's these people that call themselves the left. We look at, you know, the so-called progressive caucus and um, they will what they that they have a very specific job. And that is attack the other party, attack the Republicans. That's your job. You can call yourself the left and you can go out and you can attack Republicans. You can say they're terrible, they're horrible, and you can come out. And, and every now and then, we will allow you to abstain if we have enough votes. We'll allow you to make it look good. But you have a specific job to give the illusion that there is a left. But it's not a left that's related to economics or related to class or anything like that. It's related to the cultural issues that we choose as our priorities. So, you know, you, we, you're putting um, a populist face, a populist mask on this, um, on the super rich capitalists. Yeah. And using extreme or radical language that sounds like the grassroots left of the right wing imagination to create the veneer of a left wing of the Democratic Party while falling in line on everything that matters. Jamal Bowman, AOC, abstaining or voting with the Iron Dome, you know, arming Israel, AOC standing with her Ukraine pin and saluting Zelensky. I mean, there's very little. I mean, Ro Khanna's interview with me, I don't know why I had to be the guy putting, holding their feet to the fire, but I just had to be that because I just, do that kind of thing. But let me ask you this. I mean, there's a question in the chat about Bernie now talking about running a third time. It's kind of like, is Hillary going to run? I don't know. Is Bernie, can, can he run? Um, but that's not the question I necessarily wanted to ask, although feel free to address it. Since you brought up the left, what, what, what passes for the real left or the grassroots left in the U.S. has been fairly muted about the Russia-Ukraine war, we haven't seen that many protests. We haven't seen many street mobilizations. And the left, that section of the left was basically like the street enforcement arm of the CDC and Anthony Fauci for the past two years until they started rolling things back and letting people go back to their lives. And then they freaked out and were like, genocide, genocide. Um, the, the CDC is the capitalist death camp or whatever they called it. Uh, it was like their one moment where they could break away from the liberal establishment after just sh being 
essentially a part of it on COVID. What do you, is there a, is there a U.S. left now? Is there a viable U.S. left? I mean, we're not just talking about the squad, but outside of the Democratic Party. Yeah, I think it's, I would, you know, here's a term I'm going to use. I think there's an alternative media left. And I think that's what has to be it, the alternative media left. The great thing is COVID did something very interesting. And that is it created um, uh, so the outsiders. It, for the first year or so, you know, people couldn't do say anything or do anything to challenge the mainstream narrative. They were getting kicked off of everything, you know, uh, a deep platform, you name it. And um, kind of an immune system started growing. It was alternative platforms. It was people who were going to alternative platforms, people who were starting to do their own research. And I think that's growing. Um, I think the alternative media, you know, people like you and I and Jimmy Dore and people who are pushing alternative media um, are very, very important. I think this thing's going to grow. And I really believe one of the things, you know, hard times are fighting times, as they used to say. And I think that during the uh, when we actually had unions. And um, I think that the hard times coming up economically are going to anger a lot of people and it's going to open the door. Unfortunately, you know, it's going to open the door. Well, fortunately, unfortunately, people are going to have to suffer. They're going to feel pain, but it's going to open the door for people to start asking questions. And I think that also in Ukraine, you know, the first couple of weeks, people were completely drained. You know, I do radio on, on uh, you know, Pacifica. And the first couple of weeks, you know, people were just brain dead. Like, uh, you know, I stand with Ukraine. They, they didn't want to ask any questions. And I've had some friends of mine listen to the show say, wow, your callers are really starting to change. Most, you know, 90% of my callers are like actually asking the questions and now starting to say, you know, I kind of think we're being had on this Ukraine thing. And so I think that the alternative media and the alternative platforms such as this one that grew out of COVID created an environment where when Ukraine happened, um, people could knew they could ask questions. And they and and uh, let me add this. And enough people during COVID realized at some point that they were being had, realized at some point that the mainstream narrative needed to be questioned, that um when Ukraine happened, there's an there's a place, there's an avenue now for people to question the mainstream narrative. So I think that as the pain grows, the um, the economic pain grows, and I'm not saying that because I want it to happen. It's just it is what it is. Um, the questioning of the mainstream people are going to say, "How do we get here? Wait a minute, what are you going to do to fix this?" And when they start realizing that it's systemic and it can't be fixed and won't be fixed by the people who created it, they're going to get angry. And that's why, in an odd way, it's a positive thing that they have to do the censorship because it shows that they're losing and they know that their narratives only work if people yep. understand them on a superficial basis. As soon as people start critical yep. thinking, boom, these things fall apart. They crumble. Yep. Yeah. And, and, and they have to wipe out their the superior competition because no one wants to watch them. I mean, it's just their market share is so much weaker. So kill, just take out Jimmy Dore because more people want to watch him than anything on CNN. Um, and, 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 and let's talk a little bit about the coverage of this, this war. I mean, you, you've been covering it a lot at the critical hour with Wilmer Leon and you talked about it at Pacifica. Do you think, do you think the war propaganda that is deluging the U S public is successful? 
uh, or is it beginning to backfire? I mean, the CNN is essentially the clear, clearinghouse for CIA propaganda. And I feel like personally, I think the CIA is this, is this, I just wonder, is this the best they can do? Like phony fabricated phone calls of Russians calling to like nuke Mariupol that are like cooked up by the Ukrainian SBU. Like that's the best they can do. Um, do you think it's had any caused any perceptible shift in the American populace? And well, well I'll, I'll just leave the question there. Well, I think two things. I think the the time is not on their side. You know, you've got two things. You've got a narrative and that's all they have is a narrative. But meanwhile, there are actually things that are happening on the battlefield. The battlefield is going to decide the outcome. And I think anyone who really understood the dynamics involved with, from the beginning knew the outcome. We, I knew the outcome. This is a superpower. You know, this in, re, in reality, it is Bambi versus Godzilla. And I knew the outcome here. So what the mainstream media has had to do is push back against reality and say, you know, um, that Ukraine's winning and Ukraine has a chance to win. I finally saw an article in Yahoo News that said, well, you know, the Republicans could possibly, I mean, excuse me, the um, the Russians could possibly surround uh the uh, troops in Donbass and have some major victories here shortly. So now they're having to walk back. Mm -hmm. And at some point, the people are going to look at it and say, wait a minute, it looks like the Russians won. And I was told that they were losing and this couldn't happen. Yeah. And um, I was willing to pay an extra dollar a gallon, which they're not really. I was able to stomach an extra dollar a gallon. But now, A, the Russians have won. And B, I'm paying three more dollars a gallon than I were before. And the narrative is going to get old. And how long can they keep it up to this level? How long can you continue this level of propaganda? So I think time is not on their side. And the dynamics on the battlefield and the dynamics of economics um, are going to come together for a very serious crash of reality. You know, reality smashes itself. It's too, that's what Ukraine was. Ukraine was with the Russians. It was reality smashing through. They they saying to the Russians, no, 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 this is all defensive. No, we can do whatever we want in Ukraine. Yeah. Jen Stoltenberg yeah. even said, the Russians have no veto. They have no sphere of influence. And I thought, well, they got the most powerful military on the, on the, on the um, continent. What the hell are you talking about? Reality smashed through. And um, I think it'll smash through. Unfortunately for the Democratic Party, I think late summer into the fall, as um, you know, the economy is going to get worse and worse. Um, we'll see people start to say, "What the hell's going on here?" Similar. It, look, I I remember when no one would say anything about finish uh, about COVID, and one day I was getting in the elevator. This was three or four weeks ago. And this older guy got in the elevator with me. And in that building, you had to have a mask and he's trying to put his mask on. And he says, damn it, this is bullshit. He said, <laughs> I got all three shots and I still got COVID. <laughs> and I'm thinking, yeah, you know, reality has a way of smashing itself. Yeah, that's what uh, Omicron was like operation Z for COVID. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was like uh, every, the laptop class finally all got COVID. They didn't die. And they are all vaccinated and hyper vaccinated and it happened anyway. So it's kind of like, whoa, so they were telling us the truth about these shots and everything or, uh, well, I, no, it would have been worse if I didn't get a booster. I didn't get a shot. That's what everyone had to say. Like, how do you know? 
How do you know? It's like, yeah, it was annoying. And I had a, like a lot of like, it, it, I was sleepy and I felt bad or whatever, but it would have been worse. I just know it. Like, no, that's just the ultimate cope. And now like we're seeing so much coping because Russia has taken Mariupol. That is critical because it, and, and, and if what Scott Ritter and Doug McGregor said has been right all along that the Eastern army of Ukraine, which is its strongest forces, was going to be encircled. And Mariupol being taken frees up the forces that were you know, Russian special forces, Spetsnaz, the um, you know Lugansk and Donetsk people's militia forces, the Chechens, to actually go and participate in that fight. We saw that so many times in Syria where like when they would take a city back and liberate a city, it would free up the Syrian army and they'd gain a lot of momentum. And so what we, what they were left with, NATO and the liberal interventionist class in Syria was the whole Aleppo freak out in, uh, I guess it was December 2016. And we're approaching that moment in Ukraine uh, where they, 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 they have to create some kind of atrocity exhibition or something relating to uh, hospitals being blown up with chemical weapons just to sustain just to, just to um, sustain the public's interest in arming the proxies because the public was the, at least the, the kind of the wing of the public that falls for this propaganda which trends liberal but also people who watch Sean Hannity are very pro Ukraine so you have a, like a lot of republicans are pro Ukraine war they were on board with sending the weapons because they thought that it was leading to this Stalingrad-like victory around Kiev. They thought the Ukrainian army was winning, but now they're seeing they're going to see a different reality. So where do you think this is leading? A, a couple of things. Number one, the whole weapons thing. You know, I have a feeling deep down inside that they probably aren't sending a lot of these weapons that they're claiming to send. That Because, you know, look, you and I follow, you know, I read a lot of different stuff. And I listen to people like Scott Ritter and Doug McGregor and a lot of different people who are experts, Ray McGovern and on and on and on. And from the very beginning, they said, we know how this ends. You know, it's like Garland Nixon gets in the in the fight with uh, I mean, gets in the ring with Mike Tyson. We know how that's going to end. You can do all kind of narratives. It's going to end with Garland laying on the uh, laying on the carpet face down very, very quickly so on the mat. So the bottom line is, I think that the part of the narrative is we're sending them more weapons, which implies that they're still in the fight. It implies if we just give them a little more this this spunky um, group of fighters are standing up to the Russians. And if we just give them a little bit more, so I, you know, don't even, and then some of the stories, you know, we're giving them some vintage fighters of uh, tanks from the 1980s or something like that. Like they're pulling them out of museums in Germany and sending them to the, do they, these things even run anymore? I feel like a lot of it is lies that a lot of the stuff is not going, that a lot of it's propaganda. They know the truth as well as we know the truth, that if they if they sent the stuff, as soon as it got out of Poland, the Russians have already said, we'll blow it to smithereens. How The, the, the um, fuel depots have all been blown up. So where how are you going to get it to the people? It'll be blown up en route. It, they have no fuel to run. So I just think a lot of it is, it, a lot of this stuff, 90% of this stuff is propaganda to continue to, make the American people hold on to this hope that yeah. um, somehow the 
the Russians may lose. And the other day, Olaf Schultz saying and Bojo saying the Russians can't win. They already know that the Russians are going to win. In fact, there are people, uh, Chris Coons the other day saying, I think we should send troops. The decision's already been made not to send troops. I don't, but there are people that are like, I think they're going to intervene. If you talk to Scott Ritter, you understand something. They're not going to intervene because NATO does not have the military power on Russia's border to intervene and stop Russia from doing that. You right. don't want to fight a superpower like military superpower like Russia or China or even the United States on its own border, six or seven thousand miles from your border, you're going to lose that where they can fire everything from inside their own airspace. They don't even have to leave their own airspace to decimate you. So the reality is, I think that at some point they're going to have to deal with this reality and the incompetent boobs in um uh, Nate in, in the EU and, and running this country, really, they don't have a plan here. They're just flying by the seat of their pants. And at some point, um, you know, the Russians are very methodical and they're doing their thing. They've decided what they're going to do. And they're going to, these people are going to react to it, how they're going to react. But I don't believe they're going to react militarily because they already know that they can't be successful. And the Pentagon knows that. Yeah. And you mentioned uh, striking convoys or storehouses of NATO weapons. That's actually what happened in Lviv, the Western Ukrainian city where much of the Western media is now based. Uh, massive warehouse containing a fresh shipment of NATO weapons was blown up. Russia has the intelligence. They have the calibers to strike it. And so what kind of reporting did we get on that? None. What we got was Jose Andre's kitchen was damaged because he <laughs> somehow has a kitchen there. I don't know why they need it. There's food there. And uh, basically it looks like he's running some like, or his kitchen was damaged in Kharkiv. I, I, I don't know. We saw, saw, we heard about other things being damaged that were not a warehouse filled with NATO weapons in the middle of a city, which seems to be putting people in the city in harm's way with your tax dollars. And that was how they reported it. I thought it was just an absolute sham. We're not having the war reported to us. We're just being propagandized. We got some really good um, comments. I just wanted to go down the line and read a few of them. Normal will return after Ukraine. Uh, new, I don't know what that means. Uh, China and hyperinflation, MSM. So that's what the MSM is saying. Um, so far, the propaganda looks like looks pervasive, like COVID vaccines. Um, but again, like COVID vaccines, Omicron came along because Mother Nature, you know, I did a I'll just real quick. I'll say this. I did shows on Pacifica, both in D.C. and in L.A. And I got I had people literally call the station and complain. <laughs> to the general uh, to the, the general managers because way back a while back I did a couple of shows and I talked about a guy named Theobald Smith's law of declining virulence and I researched it and basically they said eventually mother nature ends pandemics you keep getting yep. these yep. variants and every one of them is more less con more contagious and less virulent and I did it and I'm like and apparently that's the way it's going to end. And that's what Mother Nature does. And Omicron came along and it's like, hey, I don't know whether you want this or not, but everybody's getting it and you're going to have that yeah. immunity afterwards. And people got mad at that. Again, um, reality smashes through. Genocide. And you're supporting genocide. By, like just the law of nature. Just si That's science. It's immunology or virology 101. Yep. And so, I again, time 
is not on the side of the propagandist, it, particularly in this instance. And I think that as, uh, and I also think the way Russia did it and the way the, 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 the people who would do, who would be any part of some kind of a partisan war or whatever they want to continue are out of there. They're in Western Europe and they ain't coming back. I don't yeah. think they're coming back. They're not voluntarily, that's for sure. So I don't yeah. think they're going to get the partisan war they want to. Russia did not uh, um, destroy as much infra infrastructure as the West would have, and they're going to actually have a country to put back together. And I predict China is going to come in and say, well, you know what we've got? We got a lot of money and you got seaports and wheat fields. We'd be happy to steel mills. We'd be happy to help rebuild that stuff. I, that's what I think is going to happen. Well, China already does own some plants in Mariupol and that city, another, another thing uh, Americans aren't being told by these like zombie networks is that many of the people in Mariupol are pro-Russian or ethnic Russian, like 40%. I mean, it's an almost entirely Russian speaking city. So some of them just hate Azov, the neo-Nazi battalion that ruled them since 2014 and they hate the Ukrainian military and they're delivering these testimonies. I should have had some ready to play, but you know, just it, it's just another illustration of your point that reality is crashing through, where they are saying that they were terrorized by the Ukrainian forces, and they are. This is being called Russian propaganda. So basically, the evacuees are the ultimate Russian propagandists here, and it's not being shown to the American public, so they can't understand what's happening. Um, but Mariupol could be, you know, rebuilt. Re there is a um, Donetsk People's Republic flag flying over the highest point of this. It will be part of an independent Donetsk, it appears, Donetsk. Um, and then that'll be that. And then everyone, then the media will just pretend the whole thing never happened. It was like when, when Samantha Power said that Aleppo was a genocide worse than Srebrenica. <laughs> And then she just, just, there was just no follow-up. It was just like a speech at the UN and then no one did anything about it. No one said anything about it after that. Like no one even remembers Aleppo. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it, Ukraine's going to be interesting because I think the Russians are going to control all of the, um, all of the land and cities that have access to the sea. So what's left of Ukraine, um, they, they, uh, they're going to have to bargain like hell with the Russians. The Russians are going to have Russia, Belarus, and at minimum, they're going to have a big part of Ukraine. They're going to have a friendly government in Ukraine. So they're, a lot of the food stuff, the agricultural stuff, all of that stuff, they're going to have some level of control over all of it. So, right, and right. Europe's going to be hurting. The time will come when they will have to come back to the Russians and start to bargain. Yeah, and I don't know what kind of, what will happen with the you know, Western Ukraine, the nationalist state from from uh, the Dnipro River to the west. Uh, but it looks like a rump state with no access to the Sea of Azov or the Black Sea. I think there's a chance Russia will take Odessa as well. Uh, and that that's the end of it. I mean, that's the end of this whole NATO project of, I, I, uh, I guess, they'll, they're, they're now focused more on Finland and Sweden and yeah. uh, the, the Arctic. Yeah. And keep an eye on Sunday on France, because if Le Pen wins, don't get me wrong. I don't see Le Pen, you know, for God's sake, you know, she's no de Gaulle by any stretch of the imagination. But 
Um, there is a history in France of being and De Gaulle pulled. Well, two things. A, De Gaulle pulled out of NATO. B, the CIA, CIA actually tried to overthrow him. But the bottom line is, um, if she wins, that could be the beginning of the end. of. I think we're seeing the beginning of the end of NATO anyway. And it's yeah. as the U.S. empire collapses, um, you will see a pro-sovereignty movement yeah. um, in um in uh, uh, Europe uh, due to the economic pain. And that with the US, you know, you're not an empire unless you have these tentacles all over the place. And the, the biggest tentacle is the EU and th that's gonna fall apart. And their plan to soften up Russia, break up Russia and go after China ain't gonna work real, real well when Russia don't get softened up. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, and, and, and you know, with respect to Le, Le Pen and Macron, um, I did some reporting from France years ago. I have a documentary. It's on YouTube, I think, um, still. It's definitely on Vimeo called uh, Je ne suis pas Charlie. Mm -hmm. And it was focused on the people who felt uh, targeted by the French government. Then of Hollande, who is uh, considered the whatever, the social democrat representing the left of center. Uh, but these were the you know black African immigrant popula population, the Muslim population, Arab population, the, you know, North Africans and Africans who felt like they were constantly being targeted by the media in France and constantly being bullied and had no voice. And so I gave them a, I thought I aimed to game, give them a voice in this documentary. And they obviously saw Le Pen as a gigantic enemy, but what the point they kept making, which has been illustrated perfectly by Macron is that the center in French politics and the center left, constantly co-opts the anti-Muslim, Islamophobic, or anti-migrant narratives of the right to outmaneuver them uh, for the kind of middle-class Catholic laic voters. And that's what we see with Macron. He's, I mean, I, I, there's functionally very little difference between Macron and Le Pen on the issue of French minorities, as far as I can tell. The headscarf issue and all that stuff there in unison. I, I think it's possible that Le Pen could win. Now, what you'll see if she does win, and again, I'm not, I'm not French. I don't have a right to say who I think should or shouldn't win. I believe in sovereignty. So whatever happens, happens. You know, I don't like this for anybody to ever say Garland took a position or who should or shouldn't win. I believe they should choose their own leader. But I do think you'll see like a Trump times ten, where. And what I mean is where the, the CIA, where the all of the NATO intelligence organizations will be like 100 percent trying to take her out, trying to undermine her as much as yeah. they can. She better watch yeah. your back. Yeah, I mean, the French deep state, if you want to call it that, the permanent bureaucracy will be sabotaging her every step of the way. And I don't think she has any room for maneuvering there against it, uh, as well as the, the French media and, you know, the, the youth on, on campuses. I mean, it, it will be a disaster if she is in charge. Uh, and it's already a disaster under Macron. Uh, she's running an interesting attack campaign on McKinsey. She's focusing on McKinsey as like the real power behind the throne of Macron. And yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting election to watch because I think the 2016 election in the U.S. resembled European politics more than any other election I can remember Bannon kind of uh, he he took the temperature of Europe and European populism and brought it to the U.S. and it worked.
So, I also I think that um, she in the debate the other day very wisely kind of stuck to economic stuff. What I think would be interesting if she gets in power, which right now the odds are against her, but I, it wouldn't shock me. But, you know, Paris dominates it. It depends on whether or not people stay home. Um, but what would be interesting would be if she tried to institute some of the anti-NATO kind of pro-sovereignty um uh, uh, um, parts of her platform, which will be popular. Now, yeah. then you would see the machine attack her, but they'd be attacking her for policies that would be popular for, you know, the, the, for the general public. And that would be an interesting contradiction and a contradictory, um, clash. Um, yeah. So again, th this is the early part of that in Europe. We're going to see a whole hell of a lot more than that. This is to be the first clash, and some of them are going to be way worse than this. Yeah, I agree, and uh, you'll see it. I mean, you'll see in, in the, the AFD in Germany as well. Uh, they're they're grooming leadership that'll be much more sophisticated and convincing than a clown like Gert Wilders or some of the old right wing figures, uh, uh, Jean Marie Le Pen who um, Marine Le Pen has distanced herself from. She's kicked yeah. her own father out of the National Front. I mean, they're they're clearly uh, preparing for kind of mainstreaming right-wing populism. Uh, there's a funny comment here, by the way. People should not wear headscarves, but they must wear pseudo-COVID masks. <laughs> uh, I, I do find it funny that some, the same people that wanted to uh, you know, ban face coverings for Muslim women in France wanted to mandate or did mandate that everyone wear face coverings. I mean, it's just like, can the, can the Niqabi women, Muslim women say, well, this face covering is for uh, biomedical reasons and then be allowed to keep it on. Good Has point. That, <laughs> I, 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 I mean, that debate completely receded. And, and by the way, I mean, just something I've been thinking about when I was in France, all anyone could talk about, was ISIS, the war on terror, terrorism. They had the Bataclan theater massacre. Um, they were being hit constantly. Then the US and NATO stop arming the so-called moderate rebels in Syria. And then it just ends. Like France hasn't been hit in a while. Isn't that amazing? It is. Um, you know, ISIS just like woke up one day and said, okay, we're done. <laughs> and, and you know it's, it's, it's a mission accomplished like, i don't know was there like an isis person on an aircraft carrier somewhere saying mission with a big banner and a you know a, a cod piece saying mission accomplished yeah they had a victory parade or or something or i don't know they just they just it was like it was weird it was almost like the west decided they were no longer of any utility and then the blowback ended um and that brings me to a question I wanted to ask about a book. I want to ask about two books behind you, but the first one is called Blowback. Yeah. If you're, uh, well, let me just like get, if you're like looking right over Garland's right shoulder, I guess to your left, there's a book Blowback by Christopher Simpson. Uh, what, 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 what is that book about? Why is it behind you? And, and, and can you maybe tie it into the, discussion about Ukraine. Absolutely. So there's a number of books I'm a, I love to read, but a number of books. One of them was called Blowback, The American Axis. There's another one called Operation Paperclip. You could go on and on and on. And what, all what these books are about is after, and it's all about Ukraine now, because after, it's the bottom line, what happened to the Nazis after World War II? 
a number of things. They were uh, basically inculcated into um, the uh, Western intelligence agencies. They were uh, uh, inculcated into Western politics and blowback and some of these other books. Some of them just talk about, we'll give you the names. These are the people, Reinhard Galen, whatever the name may be. This is right. where, how, where, how, where the West brought them or their organizations in. But then others will actually talk about the effect that they had on politics and on culture once right. they were once they were brought in and i think it's very much about um once the us brought these nazis uh, the not just the us i mean nato germany on and on brought these nazis into um their political military and cultural structures um and it's very important, I think, because when you look now at the United States and NATO supporting literal Nazis, just overtly supporting Nazis, you start to see some things um, that I think m many of us knew were apparent. And that was the Eastern, a lot of the Eastern European countries, their governments and their political structures um, are built on the legacies of Nazi collaborators. Right. And so um, the a lot of the, these Nazi collaborators were brought out of the, you know, at the end of the war, a lot of the people in these countries, the partisans, the people that were there that were fighting the Nazis wanted to hang them. So the U.S. brought, brought them out of there and brought them to the U.S., brought them to um, Canada a lot. So. Right. Here's what I think is important out of all of this. In 2014, you know, people talk about the Azov Battalion and how much power the political and cultural power that the Nazis have in Ukraine. What you have to understand is they didn't have it before 2014 when the United States overthrew the government. The United States overthrew the government. That's when the Azov Battalion was brought into the actual former structure of the Ukrainian military. All of these things, the Nazis were actually empowered after the United States took over Ukraine. And when you look at the Alexander Vindmans and the Newlands and Brzezinski's and on and on, you see a lot of people in the U.S. structure, power, the Christian, Christian Freelands in Canada, you see a lot of people in very powerful places here in the United States and in Canada whose um, political and oftentimes um, genetic lineages go back to basically Russia haters of some form or fashion in Eastern Europe. And that the power of the, 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 the Nazi, powerful Nazi groups in Ukraine and even in other in Poland and other places, they don't get their power from the country that they're in. They get their power from the United States and Canada. Right. Um, and since you brought up Christia Freeland, I wanted to just um, introduce viewers to her grandfather, Michael Chomiak. And this is, uh, this is from an account of Michael Chomiak, um, taking over Michael Chomiak again is the grandfather of the former foreign minister and now deputy prime minister, the number two in charge in Canada, Christia Freeland, uh, who was so overcome with passion when she when this war started that she actually was seen holding the banner of the Ukrainian partisan army that presided over the pogroms of Jews in Lvov and other cities. Uh, she was like, she all practically sigiled as she belted out Slava Ukraini, but her grandfather was a Nazi collaborator. 
and Nazi, pro-Nazi propagandist named Michael Chomiak. And let me just read um, from this account of him taking over a home stolen from a Jew in Krakow, Poland. Um, that was probably quite typical for someone at his standing in the Ukrainian community. Um, and this is from a letter that he wrote in which he stated that the apartment I was assigned, a former Jewish property, was so verminous and filthy, I was forced to refurbish and disinfect the whole apartment at my own expense. I am forced to disinfect the apartment a second time with gas candles, as not all bugs were killed during the first disinfection. So um, the fact that Nazi authorities assigned an apartment to the Chamiaks that had been stolen from Jewish inhabitants was not unusual. Um, this is what the Nazis did. Uh, but it was also apparently a reward for Chamiak running a pro-Nazi propaganda paper in Ukraine. So this is this this is uh, the legacy of the second, the number two in charge in Canada, and blowback really provides the context for understanding what happened, why it happened, and, and how it's continuing to happen. I think you could argue. Uh, I mean. You should there there should be concern that fascistic ideological elements are being taken out of Ukraine and airlifted to the West again uh, after during this current war. You know something I think that's interesting too, and that is you know Joe Biden literally said that the Charlottesville was his motivation. When he saw what happened in Charlottesville, that's when he knew he had to run for president, right? Meanwhile, up in Canada, when the truckers were doing their thing, and I watched a lot of video and I saw a lot of people dancing. I saw him dancing to, you know, hip hop music and yeah, trance, moon, uh, moon bounce, oh, electronica and all that kind of stuff. Very dangerous stuff, I might add. Moon bounce. Somebody could twist an ankle. <laughs> but um, I saw that and um, the leaders of... Um, the leaders of uh, uh, Trudeau and Freeland were literally calling these people Nazis. At the yep. same time, we now know that they were training literal Nazis in Ukraine, training and arming literal Nazis. They called people who were out on the moon bounce Nazis. And at the same, and, and again, Joe Biden saying Charlottesville made him decide that he had to run. I guess he looked at those Nazis and like, Man, they're unarmed. I got to do something about that. These people got to have guns. I'll have to run and fix that. So did you know? And I think the guy, the um, the the killer, the Christchurch killer who um, yeah. uh, murdered the people in uh, in New Zealand had an uh, uh, had a um, flak vest on with an Azov battalion symbol on it. He had been to Ukraine. So yeah, yeah. this horrific ideology had already started getting around. It's just that now Biden and Freeland at Al um, want to make sure that they are very well armed, that they've got, you know, anti-aircraft weapons and things of that nature. So they can they can really do some damage this time. Yeah, their their line is we have no idea where the weapons are going. Well, who's doing the fighting? They call we'll them defenders. Out. They call them defenders now in U.S. media. It's like the people who went to Standing Rock were water protectors, and the, the Nazis in Mariupol are, are defenders. Um, here's some photos, by the way, of uh, Canadian and U.S. officers training Azov battalion leadership that are now in the Azovstal steel factory uh, holed up in Mariupol. Um, I mean, these are these are not like low-level figures. Um, <laughs> this, I mean, you look, look at the look at the badge, 
right here. This is a wolf's angle. This is a Nazi symbol. And then here's a U.S. flag and they're exchanging uh, pleasantries and badges. Here we go. The, who's this guy? <laughs> and then you can see to the left here, I believe that is Denis Prokopenko, who is the most senior commander in the Azov Battalion. He was on uh, CNN, I think, at one point. Yeah, he was. Uh, yeah, the, so. the new CNN uh, correspondent, embedded correspondent is a Nazi, but the, you know, he's training with the U S the, the main guy in Azov who has just made a hero of Ukraine, by the way, by the Jewish president Zelensky. So don't call me a self-hating Jew. Because, uh, <laughs> by the way, though, um, you know, these are not Nazis. Only Palestinians are Nazis. Like girls who are being bombed in Gaza. They're the real Nazis. That's yeah, exactly. what we need to understand. Or people like us who challenge their narrative. We're the real bad guys. We're the real problem. The people who point out that they're Nazis, not the Nazis. They're not the problem. The people that point to them and say, hey, I think those guys are Nazis. There, there's, there's, your, pro there's your trouble right there. Yep. Us, the girl in Gaza who's getting bombed and the trucker who encounters almost zero humans for a week and sits in a, a cab driving across the frozen tundra of Canada and doesn't want to take an experimental gene therapy injection to be able to cross the border to drop off some things and sign some papers and hand them to someone across a plate, like plate glass. They're Nazis and they need to have their bank accounts seized in order to preserve democracy. And then we need to arm Dennis Prokopenko and Azov uh, to to spread freedom. That's the, the, that's the rules-based order, Garland. It uh, doesn't sound so rules-based, and it doesn't sound very orderly when you put it that way. Well, there's another book over your right shoulder I wanted to ask you about before um, we sign off, because we've been going for an hour and a half. I could you know, talk for an hour and a half more to you, and we'll never run out of material. Uh, but these are uh, biography. Well, one is a biography of Paul Robeson. I believe it was written by his, uh, by his son. Am I mm -hmm. right? And you have Paul Robeson Speaks. Oh, I'm glad you asked me that. So I'm a very fortunate man. Um, in the, I guess it was about 2006, I was in um, Washington, D.C., and I saw the, um, I saw what was then, uh, what was it called? PBS, not PBS, whatever the, the, the I used to watch it all the time, C-SPAN. And they were talking to some guy um, uh, uh, at their book club thing. The, you know, the things that they used to always do on, on um on C-SPAN, the C-SPAN books. And it was Paul Robeson Jr. And I sat there and I watched him for a while and I watched and afterwards I yeah. walked over and asked if I could interview him on the radio, say yes. So I met him, we became very good friends. And he was really my mentor for years, Paul Robeson Jr. And I talked to him like every day on the phone. I talked to him for hours and hours and hours all the time. We became the best of friends. And so um, he's got, a, you know, all of his books, literally like his book, Paul Robeson Jr. Speaks to America. We really like literally went over it page by page. And I talked a lot with him, a lot about his father. Um, when he was in town, we'd hang out when he was in DC, uh, we'd hang out and do all kinds of cool stuff. We talked about his movies and he, his father's movies. He'd explain all the backgrounds, just story after story after story. It was wonderful, very fortunate. And I would say I owe my political legacy to, to Paul Robeson. Uh, Paul Robeson Jr. Well, I um, I actually got to go to the Paul Robeson house in West Philadelphia, where he spent his final years uh, after some really unfortunate events. Got to speak to his niece there, I believe, who maintains the house. 
anyone watching right now, if you're in the East Coast or you come to the East Coast, it's really worth a visit to uh, Philadelphia, West Philly. Go to the house, support the house um, because they exist on donations. This is one point that was made to to me. And let me just say, I went with my very close colleague, Anya Parampil, who's sitting upstairs watching right now. Um, she was at RT America at the time, and she was producing a miniature documentary about Paul Robeson and his relevance and importance. And the point that his niece made was that Martin Luther King came to him. He started the civil rights movement. He preceded Martin Luther King. He preceded Malcolm X. He preceded all of them. And he has been relegated in American history, in the, the official mainstream American history to this kind of, as to this sort of footnote when yeah. he's such a towering figure, Anya constantly refers to him as the greatest American. Yeah. Like the agree. great American. Uh, and if you really look at Paul Robeson's life, the first black tailback for to to play college football, period. Uh, Othello, uh, no one could play Othello like him. Then standing up against the House Un-American Affairs Committee, um, go, touring the world, singing in Mandarin, singing in Russian, singing to dock workers in Australia, to Australian miners, to Scottish miners, um, really leading the workers' struggle and then being possibly poisoned. That's what his family believes. Yes. And somehow sort of losing his mind thereafter. Uh, she, I, I would recommend, and I would play it right now, her, this 15-minute mini-doc she made about Paul Robeson, which I think illustrates how important he is. But I can't because it was removed from YouTube because everything by RT America was removed from YouTube. And only a young correspondent like uh, you know, in journal, the, the only place a, a young correspondent with an independent mind could have produced anything like that with like a high production value was RT America. Um, so there's so much to say here, but I guess um, I wanted to just emphasize the importance of Paul Robeson. I mean, what, what, what do you think he would, what, what do you think he would be able to say about what's happening now? And, and, what are your thoughts on his importance? He was out. He was outspoken, and I truly believe the thing about him is was he was unabashed, he unabashedly he advocated that, and this is what he said: "I advocate for socialism." Whereas Martin Luther King at times said he was a democratic socialism, but he a socialist, you know, but he didn't um, push it like Paul Robeson. And Paul Robeson really worked hard for uh, unions. I mean, he was a classic socialist, though he never belonged to any party you know, officially belonged to any party. He refused. He was asked to run as vice president one time. He refused to. He didn't want to get involved really formally in politics. He was working day to day. You know, he made songs like Joe Hill and things like that. So he was really involved in the movement. Um, but um, the bottom line is, I think Paul Robeson would just say, you know, say what you believe, stand for what you believe in no matter what. And that was what he did. And um you know, it was a, a, incredible to read about and, and and learn about him. And I agree. He was a, he was a, a towering figure. The man spoke like over 20 languages fluently and literally he would like be it, he would could speak languages and various dialects of, of different languages. If or depending on which part of the country they, he was in, he was truly a genius. And I knew his son. His son was an absolute genius, too. 
Yeah, and just a comment, which was you know a comment made to to us at his at his home uh, by people close to the Robeson family was that they believe he was a victim of MK Ultra. Yes, his son said the same thing. I mean, he was in perfect condition. He was in Moscow. He went to a party, and they knew that he was always being watched by the CIA. No problems, nothing ever. And then he had a couple of uh, drinks at the party, and then he that's when he had that breakdown. They took him to England, and they did that, uh, what do you call it, the, the old shock therapy. And so, you know, they, his family believes that the evidence is very, very powerful, that it yeah. was, there was some kind of a drug that they used, and he never really was able to recover from it fully. And it would be consistent with the J. Edgar Hoover memo on preventing the rise of a black messiah. Yes, yes. And especially him because he advocated for socialism. And that was a big part. He openly advocated for socialism. Yeah. And that, that was not going to be allowed. Well, help pave the way for Obama. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Garland, is there anything else you, you want to add or, uh, or, or plug? I, I guess you, this, this would be the time to tell people where to find you out there in the I'm on Twitter. The odd thing about Twitter is, you know, when the war started, I had 9,000 followers. Now I've got 40,000, 41,000 last time I checked. It's incredible. Um, But um, I'm on Twitter at Garland Nixon. Uh, Also uh, tomorrow morning on my YouTube page, I'm going to do a, uh, I'm going to have Dan Lazar and Caleb Moffat. I love Caleb. He's really good. Um, so 10 a.m. I'll be on my YouTube page doing uh, having those two guys from 10 to 11. I do every Saturday from 10 to 11 and during the week. But um, I'm going to get on Rockfin soon. I'm looking forward to it. Great, great. Uh, and um, the critical hour, I used to listen to it on Spotify and, um, you know, iTunes. Now it's re- it's been removed. There's uh, some place you can find it. I'll send you the link. It's actually M-A-W-E is the name. May we or something like that. But we actually, okay. um, our Sputnik shows do go up on this site. I'll send you a link to it. And they're up every okay, day. Well, well, it's just for everyone watching. I, I think the critical hour is one of the best hours of uh, just current affairs from a critical anti-imperialist point of view um, with Garland and, and Wilmer Leon. So I just wanted to recommend it to all of our viewers. So, you can also and, go to uh, look, just look up, go to Sputnik News and look up the critical hour. Usually you, if you go to the bottom of the page at SputnikNews.com, you'll see, you can click on it there. So it's findable. Okay, great. Um, and uh, I also recommend Garland, you start a public telegram channel as a- Got, I have one. I'm glad you mentioned that. I'm, I have a public telegram channel, Garland Nixon. Yes. Okay. Well, I just started one. Um it's real Max Blumenthal on Telegram. It's pinned to my Twitter account. So follow me there. You know, there's no tweet limit. Like there's no um, character limit there. So I'll probably be doing more writing there and things will gradually get more interesting than they are on my Twitter account. So definitely subscribe or follow or whatever you do on Telegram until um, it's a uh, Russian CEO gets co-opted and then everything gets censored. Um, let's close by with some music, something I've never done before, but you inspired me. Uh, it's not just any music. It's Paul Robeson. Yes, I can hear today. It's hot as hell. Many of you will remember these scenes from the film Proud Valley, in which the story of a Welsh pit in the years just before the war starred the great Negro singer and actor Paul Robeson. They always have that voice. Nine years later, the great Negro. 
Scottish area of the National Union of Mine Workers, Paul Robeson gave a special concert for miners in the Usher Hall, Edinburgh. All the Scottish coal fields organized parties of the capital that evening, by rail and by road. They arrived in their hundreds. That evening, the miners came to see Robeson. But the same afternoon, Paul Robeson had been to the miners. Accompanied by the area agent, colliery manager, and union officials, he kept a dinner date in the canteen of Walmart Colliery on the outskirts of He was getting mainstream coverage and pumping up the labor movement. When you see a miner and a film star together, the husky one's the miner. Well, usually. He was like an international diplomat for socialism. They asked him to sing. I saw Joey last night, alive as you and me. Says I, but Joey, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. In Salt Lake City, Joe says I. I'm standing by my bed. They framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I did, says Joe, but I did. And standing there as big as life, and smiling with his eyes, says Joe, what they can never kill, who went on. Organized, went on I dreamed I saw you last night, alive as you and me. Says I, but you, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. Never fails to move me. Yeah, it's awesome. Well, thanks everybody for hanging out. Thank you, Garland, again, for all your time and your insights. And uh, we'll see you next week with another live stream and another incredible guest. Peace. <laughs>